Fifty years ago this November, a suspension bridge opened across the Straits of Mackinac, connecting the two peninsulas of Michigan. The Mackinac Bridge remains the longest suspension bridge in the Western Hemisphere. If you travel from tip to tip, it is 26,372 feet. That would be putting 88 football fields end to end. It's a long bridge. And its steel superstructure is so strong it can safely bear two tons of weight per lineal foot. It's a strong bridge. Each summer, I understand there's a special event that's held in which you can join other hardy souls and walk across the whole thing, if you're so inclined. Now, there's obviously only one reason human beings can cross the turbulent and frigid waters of the Straits of Mackinac on foot, and this is the Mackinac Bridge. For sinners, Jesus Christ is like that bridge. He is the only way to the other side. And He leads to only one place, to the one and only living God. Sin separates us from God as absolutely as the expansive, deep, and turbulent waters of the Straits of Mackinac separate a walker from the shores on the opposite peninsula. First, regarding Christ, you have to walk the bridge. You cannot walk on water. Secondly, there is no other bridge to walk. And thirdly, all who walk the bridge walk willingly into the presence of the one and only Savior God. They all come to the same place. In our day, there is perhaps no doctrine under such severe attack as the exclusivity of reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ alone. Statistics indicate that under the pressures of our culture, the younger generation of evangelicals in the West is losing grip on this fundamental doctrine. This is just as insane as believing that people are capable of walking across the Mackinac Straits apart from the services of the bridge. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we find recorded one of the classic expressions of God's exclusive power as Savior and of Jesus Christ's exclusive role as mediator of that saving grace. We've looked at this passage in weeks gone by and skirted through it so quickly, I wanted to come back, having ended the series through 1 Timothy, and to park on these verses surrounding verse 5 of chapter 2, and to think on them more carefully. We didn't have opportunity to do that as we worked our way through the passage, but this is a crucial text in 1 Timothy. And I'd like for us to meditate on it, to soak in it today as we consider this revelation. It is a revelation that should bring tears, I think, tears of joy as well as tears of anguish. Eternal destinies hang in the balance, and it is vital that we get this right. We've learned, first of all, beginning at verse 3, that there is only one God, and He is an earnest Savior of sinners. There is only one God who is an earnest Savior of sinners. Chapter 2 and verse 3, this is good, it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Let's just review this just briefly. 
In verse 3, we have this, referring back to verses 1 and 2, in the earnest prayers for the gospel, coupled with godly living that leads rulers to uphold a hearing for the gospel in one's culture. Remembering the context here is one of evangelism, is one of seeking the lost in this world. And here in that context of the prayers that are offered by the church for the salvation of the lost, God is pleased in those prayers and in the life that comes as rulers allow for godly living among God's people. Such evangelistic interest pleases God because He is a Savior. He desires, verse 4, that all people would be saved. In 1884, we find the first publicly recorded appeal that was sounded for someone to build a bridge across the Mackinac Straits so that people could pass from one peninsula to the other and spend money, of course, is the part of the point, I think. When we think of God, we see Him as one who yearns to bridge the gap between Himself and sinful man. There are certain cravings that man has of industry and technology and accomplishing the very, very difficult what would seem to many to be impossible. I have no idea how you build a bridge like that. I wouldn't want to begin to try. We are motivated to cross such spans and accomplish such things, to send people into space to see what we can do. We get down to the heart of who God is. There is moving within His soul a desire to bridge The ultimate expanse. The expanse between a sinful creature and the glorious, perfect God. He yearns to bridge that gap. He is the Savior who desires that all people would be saved. The reality is that the vast waters of sin separate us hopelessly from our God and Creator. We are not okay as we are. We desperately need rescue because we have violated the law of God and are alienated from His holiness, the Scriptures teach. But it is the joy of God. He desires all people to be saved. Paul may speak here of God's will of desire in contrast to His will of decree because clearly not all are saved. God wishes for no one to be lost. Or perhaps Paul means here only to stress that God's saving interests are universal in their reach to all kinds of people. But in any event, Paul's purpose is not to address predestination or the interrelationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility here. Paul more broadly leads us to rejoice in the fact that God earnestly desires to save people, male and female, young and old, rich and poor, kings and subjects, people of every language and tribe and nation. Now notice here, this salvation is affected as the Savior, as the sinner rather, comes to the knowledge of the truth. The sinner is saved as they come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 4, this is crucial. It is saying that the sinner must embrace reality. Let's take a man who feels that there's a second bridge across the Mackinac Straits and drives his car toward that bridge to end up at a different point 
across the straits. Well, you know where this is going to end. He's in the icy cold Lake Michigan. He's out of touch with reality, with what objectively is. Salvation does not come by getting in touch with how we feel things ought to be. And this is so often the struggle. Faith, Paul declares in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Salvation comes by means of a rational apprehension of the objective revelation God reveals to us in His Word, and that God, in fact, enlightens us to see. God created light, and God enlightens those that He saves. He brings them to a knowledge of the objective truth of the reality that is. He is the bridge. There is no other. Such understanding results in a wholehearted trust in this truth. So God reveals this truth, which leads then to a wholehearted trust in this truth. I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot to think through this when it comes to the physical realm and walking across the Mackinac Bridge. When you get there, you realize there's one direction to go. Apprehending and seeing the bridge is to trust it and to walk across it if you're going to bridge that span. And so it is with the truth of the gospel. The truth is this glorious gospel. What does he mean there in verse 4 when he says that he desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? What is the truth in view here? We can fill in from other passages. First of all, it is that you have sinned and angered God and are the object of His holy judgment. Could you confess that today? Could you believe this? Do you believe this? Could you confess this? You have sinned. I have sinned and angered God and am the object of His holy judgment by nature. The knowledge of salvation, we must be cautious here, is not that God delivers you from the forces of evil. There's a sort of Star Wars evangelicalism that's out there. God delivers you from the forces of evil. That is not what salvation in Christ is. It is not that God enlightens you and brings you to a higher level of spiritual consciousness. It is not that God finds you so valuable to Him that He designs a wonderful plan for your life to help you realize your potential. The salvation message is that God rescues you from His wrath against your sin. God saves you from the hell that you deserve. In fact, God saves you from God. He saves you from His holy anger against your just judgment. Secondly, Jesus came to earth as the God-man to pay the death penalty of sin for you, such that all who trust that message by means of His electing grace will be saved from His wrath. And thirdly, Jesus rose from the dead in victory over death and will give you His resurrection life as you trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins. I am a sinner. Christ pays the penalty of my sin, rises from the dead, and in Him and through faith in Him, as God gives me that grace to trust and believe, I embrace Jesus alone as the Savior from sin. This is the objective revelation that God has given in His Word and that must be embraced. Verse 4. 
He wills that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, for there is one God. That is, the universal scope of the gospel, verse 4, is directly connected to the reality that there only is one God. Every human being bears the image and lives under the absolute authority of the God who saves. Therefore, there is only one God to whom all must look for salvation. There is only one God and one Savior. There's only one God, and He is an earnest Savior of sinners. But we learn here in verse 5, secondly, that there is only one mediator between God and man, and He gave Himself as a ransom. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. One mediator between God and man. We know what a mediator is. A mediator, a person who stands between two hostile parties and labors to unite them. Often in our context, through the use or application of law, or at least just common sense. It brings these two hostile parties face to face and strives to unite them together. There is one man who does that. Who bridges that gap between the sinner and God. As the mediator of a new covenant between God and man, Hebrews 12, 24, Jesus bridges the gap between sinners and the God who reconciles us. There is but this one bridge. I was talking to a jail inmate this week, or last week I believe it was, and um, he came to our study and asked this question. He seemed to be a very earnest thinking man quiet man, but he wanted to know, is it possible to be saved apart from Christ? He's been there before, months ago, and I think that he probably is testing this idea and hoping I've changed my mind, that the Bible's changed his mind. It really troubles him. Here's just a common man who comes into a setting like this, and this is a problem intellectually, that anyone would have the daring to come in and say that there is only one perspective that leads to eternal life. How long are we going to hold this idea before we just get rid of it? Because it's very off-putting. It's very offensive. Now, we should never marshal this truth of God's revelation flippantly, callously, proudly, But we have to say when we're standing on the shore of one side, there's only one bridge. And no matter how much you want to believe that there are many leading across the various points on the other side, there's only one. And to say anything else is to lie and to confirm you in your depravity. Do we really believe this? How hard will we hold on to this? I think the only hope for us in sanctification is to be fed by the words of Scripture. So let's stop and park for a moment and think on the exclusive nature of Christ as the only mediator and think biblically on this point. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. And I have you turn to a number of passages of Scripture to sit down in this point and to consider it carefully that God may sanctify us and stabilize us as an assembly in the midst of much 
aversion to this idea. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here we do not have the vision of a universal response to salvation in God. We have here, in fact, individuals who believe they are serving Christ and who are separated from Him. It is a serious warning shot sent by Jesus. Luke chapter 13 and verse 23. Luke chapter 13. And verse 23. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? What was indicated in Matthew chapter 7? You don't get a real strong sense that the vast majority of people are going to be saved. In fact, again, there are those there who seek to serve Christ, who in fact are completely separated from Him and don't know Him. But we have clear confirmation here when this very question is asked. Will there be many saved or few? Jesus says to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. There's serious words. Will many be saved? What does Jesus say? Strive to enter through the narrow door. John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus addresses Nicodemus, one who is among the covenant people of God, one who is a teacher of the Old Testament text, one who knows much of the Scriptures and much about the true and only God, who has lived a very religious and upstanding life. John chapter 3, we read in verse 17 that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Now that far all makes sense to us. But then He says, Whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The condemnation note does not come after a rejection of Christ, but is understood. It is assumed. There is a condemnation into which we are born. And it is only through belief in Christ that we exit this condemnation. Now, our world teaches us to think exactly the opposite. A child is innocent at birth, and only the person who raises their fist in the face of God and defies God and says, I want nothing to do with you, is lost. But Jesus turns that right on its head and says it's entirely the other way. We are by nature under the condemnation of God. Only those who respond in faith, who believe in Christ, are saved. John chapter 14 and verse 6. 
John chapter 14 and verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or to say it in the analogy that we're using, I am the only bridge to the Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. There is a knowledge of Christ that leads to a knowledge of the Father. And it is only through Christ that this knowledge comes. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, we read earlier this morning, I read as we began our service, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. There's an important Greek word that may miss us here, but we catch it fairly well in the English in 4.12, where it says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That word must the Greek word die speaks of utter necessity here. We must be saved by this name. There is no other. No other option given. In Romans chapter 3, let us review again as we read together. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. By the works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So it will not be through human obedience to the law of God that anyone pleases God, that finds justification before God. Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it doesn't come out of nowhere. The law and the prophets have borne witness to this, but this is an amazing thing. There's a righteousness that comes from God as a gift. It's not something that is earned by your keeping the law, but it is a righteous standing that God gives. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The righteousness apart from law comes through faith in Jesus for all who believe in Jesus. There is a rational apprehension of who Christ is and what He has done that is always laid out as the bridge to saving grace. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How do you call on the name of the Lord? To worship the sun, the moon, and the stars because that's all that you have and all that you know to do as good as you think you should do? How do you call on the name of the Lord? Verse 14, but how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? What Paul is saying is you cannot call on the one that you've not come to apprehend, to comprehend, to believe in. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? If they've not heard of Christ, there is no capacity to believe in him. And apart from belief, there is no salvation. And how are they to hear 
without someone preaching. This is difficult truth for our ears to hear. It ought to be. But it is the consistent message of Scripture. There is no salvation apart from hearing the message of faith and responding in faith to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. There is not a natural response to the message of the gospel which leads to salvation, Romans 3. It is naturally folly. It makes no sense. Verse 21 This is because in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So where are we by nature? We see the message of Christ crucified and risen as utter folly. This is God's design. It is His design that seeing this message as utter folly necessitates that God will act That He will enlighten the message of the Gospel. That He will do a work in the heart that responds to that message in belief. So that those who are saved are saved through the folly of what we preach. That is, through the message of Christ crucified and risen. There is light shown upon that truth such that one believes. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we just sketch and highlight this consistent teaching of Scripture. We have then the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The man, a bridge is worthless if it does not reach both sides of an expanse. Jesus touches both sides of the expanse. He is fully God, one side, and He is fully man, the other side. He perfectly bridges the gap between. And this is the unique teaching of Scripture, the unique teaching of Christianity. Jesus Christ is not one prophet among many who has shown up along the way for these prophets to give us some information that will lead us to approach God. No, Jesus is the expanse touching both sides at once uniquely in Himself. And as that man brings us to God, not merely through what he taught, but through who he is. Indeed, he was the man. We were reading in our family time here recently in Daniel 7. It is just a stunning prophecy. Absolutely stunning prophecy. No matter how liberal, how much you despise Scripture, you cannot date Daniel anywhere close to the time of Jesus Christ. Hundreds of years before, there is this prophecy to Daniel of a son of man who comes into the presence of Almighty God and is given an eternal kingdom. This man is prophesied all through the Old Testament as the one who will come in human flesh, but yet who walks in the presence of Almighty God and doesn't drop over dead. 
In fact, he communes in his presence and receives a kingdom from him, Daniel prophesies in chapter 7. This access to God comes through one who was fully God and fully man. And why is it so important that Jesus was a man? Because, verse 6, he then could give himself as a ransom for all. A ransom, a price paid to purchase the release of a slave. Jesus is the man, and he purchased the salvation of all by dying a human death such that anyone he draws to saving faith will be forgiven of sin and delivered from God's wrath and judgment in death. He gave himself, stressing the willing, self-sacrificial nature of Christ's payment for forgiveness. He did this for all. There is a substitutionary atonement paid for sinners at the ideal spot on the timeline of salvation history. This is the testimony given at the proper time. All working together, prophesying to the person of Christ, coming at this particular point in time and giving his life in substitutionary atonement for sin. I hope there's times in your life, Christian, where you grasp this truth to the point of tears. I hope there have been times and places in your life where the tears well up and the heart fills with gratitude, with joy, with hope in God for who He is. One Savior God, one mediator between God and man who has given us this salvation. But I think if we truly grasp this truth, we will also fill with tears at times of tears of grief for a world that rejects the objective truth of Christ crucified and risen. And we ask in our souls, why does it have to be this way? That is because our natural orientation is toward fairness, toward justice, toward, in grace, others receiving what we've received, how we should think. But to honor the exclusive nature of Christ as Savior, we must fully apprehend the depths of human depravity. We asked the question earlier this morning in the adult class, how depraved are the lost? How lost are the lost? How separated from God are we by nature? Some propose that God can be found by those who respond to the light that they have, including divine truths embedded in world religions. There are leading evangelical voices that are proclaiming this, writing it in books. It is everywhere prevalent, the idea that people can find God in various ways, even those saying that they don't know it, but they're coming through Christ. Which really smacks me of tremendous pride. When you think about it, if you're trying to make all people equal, think of that. You're worshiping in the religion of Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, and you don't know it, but you're coming through Christ. That isn't going to endear you to anybody, believe me. But there are those saying that. They're right about one thing. It is through Christ alone. Do people find God embedded in other religions? Light sort of hidden in the corners that they chase and find.
This idea ignores what Jesus said was essential to enter the kingdom of God. It is essential, says Jesus, to be born again. It is essential to be regenerated by God, not merely to respond on a human level to what you see. There has to be a work of transforming grace by God. I do not know how he moves sovereignly to choose to enlighten some and not others. I don't understand that. I never will in this life. But we have to listen to what he says about his salvation scheme, not rework it so that it fits our sensitivities. You must be born again. How much light a person must have, how they must respond entirely to what entire message, again, we don't always know that. The Spirit moves as He wills, certainly, but what Scripture teaches is there must be an apprehension of the salvation in Christ. In other words, people are not inherently equipped to respond to embedded truths. They might mine out of other religions, if there are any there. And I suppose on one level you can say that there are. There are commonalities at times with other faiths. We are made in the image of God, and occasionally we trip over some ideas that are good. But what the Scripture teaches is that we must be regenerated, that our hearts are depraved, that as Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, there is no one who seeks God, not one. And in light of this teaching, that there are people seeking God in other religions outside of Christ, we just have to forget about Romans 3. There is no one who seeks God. Those who claim to embrace a supposedly more loving God are on an imaginary bridge to the wrong destination. They simply are not heeding what God reveals about himself in the depths of human depravity. I'd like us to turn to 2 Peter 3. If you'll plow with me for just a bit longer. 2 Peter chapter 3. And go back in your mind to Genesis chapter 6. And remember there that God was provoked to destroy the planet, accepting only eight people. Genesis 7 the family of Noah was spared because of the depravity of humanity on earth. The biblical record does not here support the notion that the earth was populated by God-seeking people, but rather that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6-5. This is the picture we have in Genesis 6, a world gone bad, and the world has not changed to become a staging ground from which the vast majority of inhabitants find saving mercy with God in various religions. What has fundamentally changed that we're so very different from Genesis chapter 6? As some claim. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter shows a very different perspective. While God is exercising immense patience and long-suffering mercy, chapter 3 and verse 9, the moral character of the world has clearly not changed since the days depicted in Genesis 6. Peter draws purposefully from Genesis 6 when he says in verse 6 of chapter 3, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. 
Any child in our Sunday school system here would know that's talking about the Genesis flood and that that was a cause of God's wrath. But by the same word, verse 7, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So as with the flood, likewise this second and even more cataclysmic destruction of the earth will fall. For what purpose? Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The purpose of this second cataclysmic destruction is to expose the works in this world. In other words, God will once again assess the moral condition prevailing on the earth and will respond in holy wrath to the extent that the heavens and the earth will be consumed by fire and dissolved. We must believe this because it is the truth. And we must point all to that one bridge because they perish if they do not repent and embrace Christ alone for salvation. This brings us then, at the end, to the nature of idolatry. When we see someone pursuing religion apart from Christ in order to come close to God, do we see there an earnest pursuit of the one true and living God? In Romans 1 and verse 18, we find a very different account. In Romans 1 and verse 18, we find the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They sit on it. They don't want it to be seen. How does Paul develop the fact that people suppress the truth? Exhibit number one is the person who is bowing down to an idol and pursuing that idol. Verse 21, for although in creation, he's saying, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Idolatry is not a running after the one true God. It is a running from Him. This realization is harsh. It is difficult but it renders grace, grace. And that is why I thank God for it and for the privilege that we have to embrace it and to hold it as hard as it is. It renders grace truly to the very core of its essence, grace. It is the undeserved favor and kindness of God towards sinners who run from Him and reject Him by their nature. And when we come to understand who we are and who God is and the 
gravity of the situation in which we are born, we then come to recognize and understand what grace really means. And through that, come to know who God really is. May this motivate us to proclaim the gospel freely and widely, and may it motivate us to come to know more fully the grace and the goodness of our God. This should not send us from here with hearts filled with pride. It should send us humbled and thankful for the fact that God has put us on the bridge and that through Christ we are walking to the one destination that will bring salvation through eternity by grace alone. Let's bow for prayer.